0: Now today our reading begins in Genesis 33, and we're going to begin at verse 1. Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel... And the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in, in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessings that is, that is brought to you. "'because God has dealt graciously with me "'and because I have enough. "'Thus he urged him, and he took it. "'Then Esau said, "'Let us journey on our way, "'and I will go ahead of you. "'But Jacob said to him, "'My Lord knows that the children are frail "'and that the nursing flocks and herds "'are a care to me. "'If they are driven hard for one day, "'all the flocks will die. "'Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, "'and I will lead on slowly.' at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in seer. Amen.
1: So I'll be honest, I've never gotten the whole pro wrestling thing. WWE Raw, WCW, WWE SmackDown, I don't even know what that means. Because it's not really a sport, is it? It's more a kind of cartoonishly violent, wacky sort of entertainment. The moves are all pretty much choreographed. The winners are decided beforehand. Its appeal escapes me. Am I alone? (laughs) But as a child growing up in the 80s, I couldn't ignore the wrestling business altogether. For one big reason Hulk Hogan. He was the undeniable poster boy of it all. Or poster behemoth, you might say. He was massive, he was colourful, and by the mid-80s, he was so popular that his role in wrestling and his army of fans had become collectively known as Hulkamania. And to be fair, he delivered some fairly memorable lines in his wrestling promos. For example, he was once quoted as saying, God created the heavens, he created the earth, he created all the Hulkamaniacs. And again, to all my little Hulkamaniacs, say your prayers, take your vitamins, and you will never go wrong. But then here's one of his most famous lines of all. Well, let me tell you something, brother. In that smoky, husky, southern accent of his, Hulk Hogan always referred to the opponents that he intended to professionally pummel as brother. Brother. Well, Jacob and Esau were brothers, weren't they? Twin brothers too. And even before they were born, they were feisty with each other. Genesis 25:22 says that the children struggled together within Rebekah. And the Hebrew is literally the children crushed one another within her. And according to the international standard version, the infants kept on wrestling each other inside her womb. So there was a WWE WrestleMania of sorts going on before the twins ever saw daylight. And when it came to their birth... Jacob's little hand firmly held onto Esau's heel in his little grip. And for the next 40 years, it seems, the two boys just kept on fighting. There was a fight over their birthrights in Genesis 25, there was a fight over their father's blessing in Genesis 27 and not just to the point of brawling, but to a plot by Esau to murder Jacob once their father was gone. And Jacob was guilty of being a right sneaky bandit. And yet, for all of his scheming, and deceiving, and cheating, he became a true believer in God. God's saving grace came to him. Probably first of all at Bethel, after he had fled Canaan from Esau, it was at Bethel where he entered into a covenant with God. And that's where God began to speak to Jacob. And Jacob developed an all-too-imperfect yet personal relationship with God. And so his slow journey from grasper to giver began. And God began to discipline Jacob after that because God disciplines the ones he loves and that was tough for Jacob and it meant laboring for a long time under his crooked uncle Laban and so it's over 20 years before he sets off for his home country again and during that time his mother has passed away So he paid a high price for his shady dealings. And on his way back to Canaan again with his large family, his fear of his brother Esau is still great. And his Facebook message to Esau to let him know he's coming, or face scroll as it was back then, Well, he sent that off, and the message came back from Edom was brief. Coming to meet you with 400 men. Uh oh. Does that sound like a welcome party or a war party? It didn't specify. But Jacob definitely assumed war party. So, first of all, he panicked, and then he prayed. He prays this prayer, beginning in Genesis 32, verse 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me the mothers, with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now that's the prayer of a pretty mature believer, I think. And God answered that prayer with a mysterious figure appearing before him at Peniel. And he wrestled Jacob all through the night until daybreak. So while his previous life in Canaan had felt like one long wrestling match with his brother, now he had to endure a literal wrestling match with a man who turned out to be God himself. See verse 30. And that's just what the boffins call a theophany. Or more specifically, in this case, a Christophany. This was a pre-incarnate appearance of God the Son. And this wrestling experience with God left Jacob with a terrible limp and it resulted in him getting a new name. Did you know that Hulk Hogan was not the name his mother gave him at birth? No, in fact, Terence was his name. He was known as Terence Balea or Terry before he got his ring name. Well, Jacob too got a ring name, as it were, from God Israel. Israel was his new name because he had striven with God and with men and had prevailed. Verse 28. Now, while Jacob was a man of God, Esau was more a man of the world. Esau, like Jacob, had been circumcised under the covenant and had been brought up in a believing home. But he had no interest. It says earlier in Genesis that he despised his birthright. Which he sold to Jacob for a bowl of stew. He had no interest in spiritual things. In Hebrews 12:16, in the NIV, it describes him as godless. He was a godless man, but at the same time, he had some redeeming characteristics which is something that all unbelieving men and women have to a greater or lesser degree. Because all are made in the image of God. God's law is written upon everyone's hearts. And all receive God's common grace in this life. And Esau, in many ways, is a likeable character. He's strong. He's generous. He's sympathetic, I think. But he's also just a little bit gangster. I mean, it was no idle threat that he was planning a hit on Jacob. Jacob. His own mother and father both urged Jacob to go on the run. So he's just a wee bit Tony Soprano, you know. Big bear of a guy. Plenty of charm. Good to his friends, as long as they're loyal. But you could never be entirely sure if he was going to hug you. Or hug you and then send you to sleep with the fishies. And in ungodly folks like Esau, redeeming qualities are still there. And they're an attractive evidence of God's common grace in people. They're not an evidence of anyone's own inherent goodness. So common grace is a wonderful thing. This world really shouldn't be as livable in as it is. What with all the sin and evil in our hearts that we're all born with. Ever since Adam failed the test back in the garden ever since Adam's failure to keep the covenant of works as our perfect representative and yet God is still gracious he limits evil He restrains many of the sins that we would otherwise and even more frequently commit in both unbelievers and believers. That's another side of God's grace in this world. And so when we see what looks to be evil in all of its ugliness on display, It's then that we're witnessing the limits of God's common grace. And instead, we're seeing some people's true colours shining through. Now, when the brothers are finally reunited. Here in Genesis 33, it's just not the royal rumble that everything seemed to be building towards. And I think God has been continuing to answer Jacob's prayer from Genesis 32. Jacob's heart has been changed significantly more since his experience with God at Peniel. Before it, he seemed to want to use others as a human shield against Esau and his entourage. And it was as if he was planning to say to Esau, If you want to get to me, you have to go through them. But in chapter 33, verse 3, that's been reversed. Jacob himself went on before them. He's the human shield. And now it's as if he's saying to Esau, if you want to get to them, you've got to come through me. And he bowed seven times before Esau. And this was not some kind of snivelling or grovelling act, as some people have assumed. This was just a traditional mark of respect before a tribal king. And by doing so before his brother, he was also humbling himself before him and displaying remorse. And admission of guilt for his part in the severing of their relations. He was putting himself in a position to receive mercy and forgiveness from Esau that he could never demand or even expect by rights. You see, the big difference in Jacob now is that he's not acting out of his cleverness or by his wits anymore. He's displaying at last a more humble dependence on God, a greater faith in God and his providence. And Esau ran to Jacob, not to execute, but to embrace. And he fell on his neck, and he kissed him, and they both wept. What a moment It's always quite a sight to see two men happily bawling their eyes out, isn't it? Big tears of joy mingled with tears of relief. Also some tears of remorse, I think, for all the damage that's been caused. This is a moment of reconciliation to remember. And undoubtedly one of the best moments of Jacob's life. And he goes on to say in verse 10 that seeing Esau's face is like seeing the face of God. And this wasn't flattery or hyperbole on Jacob's part. It was because he had seen God's face. In a sense. Though it had been cloaked in the darkness of night. And from God's face. He had received mercy. And grace. And now when he looked into Esau's eyes. In the daylight. He saw mercy. And grace. Once again. He could see once again God's graciousness and kindness towards him reflected in the face of his brother. So it's not the Esau that he had dreaded for the past two decades. And so at what point had Esau's heart turned away from its revengeful intentions? It could, have begun, it could have begun to happen a long time ago. It could have happened on the journey over. Or it might only have happened when he set eyes on Jacob bowing down seven times before him. And then his heart melted. We don't know. But whenever it was, God gets the glory for it. And that we can be certain. And on this issue, listen to this from Robert Smith Candlish. He says, Doubtless he who has the hearts of all men in his hands has been preparing Esau's soul for this softening issue and impression. The same divine wrestler who thoroughly humbled Jacob has been beginning beginning to humble Esau too. His relenting is manifestly the Lord's doing, the result not of any measure of policy or persuasion on the part of Jacob, but of the Lord's immediate interposition to change the mind of Esau. I think that's spot on. We often hear the phrase God is in control used by Christian believers, and rightly so. But there's a lot packed into that phrase, and Candlish there unpacks it and applies it well to our passage here. And it's really just a fuller application of what God says about his own sovereignty. In Proverbs 21.1, there we read that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Lord can turn the most powerful people's hearts that we can imagine wherever he will. And that's why we pray for God to change people and situations. Because He can. And He does. And that's comforting. Because nothing can ever frustrate God's will of decree. It's soothing to our natural mindset that no one can ever frustrate God's ultimate will. That we never need to scheme and plot like the younger Jacob did to try to achieve his aims. We don't need to cheat and deceive To accomplish God's plans for us. His precious promises to us. We don't need to try and force God's providence. Rather we can rest. In his sovereignty. Knowing that he can change people's hearts in decisive ways. And that's something we we really have no power to do. So we don't need to worry half as much as we do either. Indeed, as Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow because each day has enough trouble of its own. And our worries only wear us out and are pretty pointless anyway. Because God really, truly always is in control. And so it was God who ultimately brought about this moment of reconciliation. And Jacob recognizes that. And in verse 11 he says to Esau, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And so Esau eventually accepted the gift of 550 animals, partly because Jacob insisted, and as a kind of reparations or seal upon the new peace. That had been established between them. Certainly not because he needed them. Because he also said that he had enough. Verse 9. He was clearly a very well-to-do kingpin over in Edom. And according to Isaac's blessing to him earlier. He acquired it by war. Not by farming or shepherding. Again, that's the gangster side to Esau. And he has at least 400 henchmen under him to do his bidding. And I think Jacob was just so relieved about everything that he wanted to part in peace from Esau fairly quickly. He didn't want to fall out about anything else on the way or have anything threaten their reconciliation in any way. Jacob and Esau were reconciled as brothers, but that didn't just automatically make them best mates. It will always be a joyful thing when you reconcile with someone You've had a rift with. But it doesn't necessarily mean you need to WhatsApp them every day. Buy a tandem bike together. Imagine getting a, a tandem e bike and then two trips later it's done. Reconciliation can be moving close and then moving on. At least it did for Jacob and Esau. And there may have been other reunions down the line that we don't know about. But the Bible only specifies that when they're together again, it was to bury Isaac, their father. But there's far too many broken relationships in this world, aren't there? People who've become estranged from one another, divided from one another. So many alienations between people. And sometimes over the silliest things, And sometimes over very serious things, but both are painful. So always be open to reconciliation between yourself and others. Romans 12:18 says, "If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone." But the most painful, broken relationship in the world today is the one between us and God. The relationship between mankind and their creator. And yet so many people are in denial about that. Many kid themselves on that there isn't even a God to be alienated from. But they also constantly blaspheme His name and Christ's name, which is an evidence of their hostility towards God. And we saw in Romans 118 in our current Roman series that God's passive wrath is settled upon mankind. As a result of their turning away from him. But even though God's wrath is upon mankind. So is his love upon mankind. Turn with me if you will to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. To verses 18 and following. There we read this All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Moments of reconciliation are great, but a ministry of reconciliation. Is greater still. Because God has made a way. For there to be reconciliation. Between us and him. The sinner. And the sinless one. Have been enabled to draw close. Man and God. Woman and God. Become reconciled. We have been embraced, as it were. There's been arms around necks, kissing and weeping for joy, all that kind of thing. We're no longer alienated from God. We're united forever in a close relationship. Not a distant one like Esau and Jacob. And we have this ministry of reconciliation, according to Paul. What does this ministry of reconciliation involve? Well, it involves sharing the message of this restoration of God's relationship to the world it says God has entrusted to us the message of this reconciliation and that's a privilege really not a burden because it's the message of reconciliation that we get to dwell upon that we get to dwell upon and so we preach it we teach it we declare it we discuss it we promote it we draw closer to God day by day Through it, we draw close to each other by it. We feed on it. We drink from it. We're sustained and we're encouraged by it. We gain a blessed assurance from it. And we celebrate it in song. We praise and thank God for it. We worship and love our Savior Jesus for achieving it. Because there had to be a mediator to bring about this reconciliation. It had to be through the mediation mediation of the incarnate Son of God. That's how severed the relationship was. That's how serious our hostility was. Through Christ, we were reconciled to God. Jacob's gift of 550 animals could never pay the price of our rebellion. It was not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of Christ's own blood to secure an eternal redemption. The gospel is the message of reconciliation. It's not good advice. It's good news. Because it's not us who do the reconciling. God has already done that. It is finished. It's completed at the cross. And there's nothing we can add to that. The gospel is not Jesus plus anything. There's no reconciliation plus. It's purely a gift of God's grace to undeserving rebels. So if you haven't yet believed, in this great reconciliation package, and that it's for you. Well, let me tell you something, friend. As one of Christ's many ambassadors, two Corinthians five twenty, I implore you, on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Receive that reconciliation. Trust the Lord Jesus. The one who knew no sin and his life's work on your behalf. Trust the one who was made to be sin to take your death sentence upon himself at the cross and trust the one whose resurrection victory guarantees your eternal joy and your eternal relationship and for all of us here we remember that Christ himself is our peace. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Ephesians 2.19 And so we love each other. With all the complexity of our backgrounds and preferences. Our past failings and present failings. When we're close to each other, we're close to God. Grace Church is to me wonderful beyond words. I'm so grateful for you. And as we've limped on together, like Jacob, through many difficulties as a family, I think God's grace has only made our bond all the stronger. You are so loved by God and by the family of God. So, then in closing, let me tell you something, brother in Christ, sister in Christ. Just as Jacob went on ahead and presented his family to Esau, and they bowed down before him, so Jesus will one day present us, his family to God the Father and we will bow down and there we'll experience the Father's love in a whole new way in a way we can't even imagine despite the fact I think there's a few of us in God's family who have some fairly wild sanctified imaginations. Let's bow before him now in prayer, shall we? Loving Father, we thank you so much for the grace in which you have poured out upon us as a church. The grace that you have poured out upon this world that didn't want you. That didn't think it needed you. But by your grace you wrestled us And you broke us, and you opened our eyes to see your beauty, to see the love that we've been longing for in our hearts all our lives. Thank you that knowing you is like coming home. Thank you that drawing close to you fills our hearts with a contentment and a peace that nothing else can. Thank you that your word thrills our hearts and stills our hearts and draws us close to you and to each other. Humbles us and lifts us, warms our hearts so that we can worship you together in spirit and in truth. So help us, Father, with our human reconciliations. Bring many more about, we pray. And Father, for the greater reconciliation that you have already accomplished in Jesus at the cross. May that be applied to hundreds and thousands and millions of people around the world. May the family of of God grow and swell in praise and thankfulness and gratitude. For all that you've done for us. So receive our thanks and receive our praise. In Jesus' worthy name, Amen. We're going to sing now, Lord, I give you my heart.